The word of God from Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please remain standing. As we um, commit this time in prayer. Oh Lord, um, I don't know if people are anything like me, but I feel um, distracted, and I just confess that to you. And I wonder if I feel distracted because of um, that passage we just heard. It just feels like too much. I know it's true, but even still, it feels like too much. And we just pray that, um, I pray for myself, I pray for us, You'd soften our hearts so we could really believe that you are good towards us in these um, hard teachings um, and trust you. So by your spirit, illumine these words, these ancient words, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, for we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Denver Press. I'm Ronnie, if, uh, if I've never had the pleasure of meeting you. And we're in the middle of a sermon series on the seven deadly sins. And, um, you know, each Sunday uh, we suggest that the topic of the day is like the worst one, right? Like, so this is the worst one. Um, we're talking today about the deadly sin of greed, Uh, The Desert Fathers had a word for greed. They called it avarice. Avarice is a a little bit more complex. Avarice is this inordinate and excessive spiritual attachment to money or the things that money can buy. And I don't know if this is the worst one, but what I know for sure is that all of us, all of us are massively compromised. Uh, You can't live in the United States, the the wealthiest country in the world, much less Denver, one of the wealthiest cities in the wealthiest country of the world, and not be touched by greed. Uh, If you're new with us here today, if this is the first sermon you've ever heard me preach, uh, you hit the lottery. (laughs) Um, I'm really glad that you're visiting 
Um, I, want you to, um, I want you to hear my heart as I talk about this topic, because it's not that I want something from you. It's that I want something for you. Like, we want to protect you. We want to care for you because greed is deadly. And we don't even recognize it when we're looking at it. I don't know if you had to do this, but when I was a senior in high school, we had to read Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Did a few of you read them? Do you remember um, one of the stories, one of the tales was uh, the Pardoner's Tale. Uh, If you'll remember the story, the Pardoner was like a priest of sorts, a clergy of some kind, but really he's a charlatan. Uh, He's like this proto-prosperity gospel preacher who's swindling and trying to take money from people using spirituality. And it would be ironically him who tells this very poignant story. He says, three men set out to avenge a death of a friend. And they learn where they can find this murderer And it turns out it's at at this one particular oak tree just outside of town. And when they arrive to the tree, they did not find what they expected. They found a very substantial treasure. Now, it was late when they arrived, and they didn't have everything necessary to get the treasure back into town. So they needed to stay there with it and to guard it. And of course, um, they didn't expect to be staying out all night, so they needed to get food, bread, and wine for the evening. Uh, So they drew straws, and they sent the man with the short straw out back into the city to get the bread and the wine. Well, while the one was away, the two that remained decided that when he comes back, they're going to kill him and split his share. And while the one was away in the city, he thought to himself, if I poison the wine, it'll kill the two, and I'll get their share. And so the one returned, they killed him, and then the two drank the wine, and they all died. The treasure remained. The murderer killed three more people. He succeeded. It's a familiar plot line, isn't it? A greed does people in. Greed is deadly, and that's why we call it one of the deadly sins. But greed doesn't look like a murderer, does it? Greed just, it it doesn't look like that. It looks like what? It looks like opportunity, freedom, security. That's what it looks like when you're staring it in the eye. In the passage that we had read for us today, Jesus says very plainly in verse 25, you cannot serve God and money. Now, your New Testament, in its original form, was written in Greek, all right? So if you're to study it, your New Testament's in Greek. But Jesus, he spoke Aramaic. He didn't speak Greek. Well, when you read the original text that was recorded, the word money is in Aramaic. It's the Aramaic word mammon, all right? So you read it. The word money is left in the Aramaic. It's mammon. So the apostles who preserved Jesus' words... Uh, and his teachings would generally translate his Aramaic into Greek since their readers knew Greek, not Aramaic. Now, the translators, they could have easily translated the Aramaic word mammon into the Greek equivalent, but instead, they left this word untranslated, suggesting that it had a particular significance. Uh, Maybe it's a proper noun or a proper name. 
Well, by the first century, the church concluded that Jesus had in mind there not a concept, but a, a demonic power, a proper name. Mammon is not generically describing wealth. It is a rival god that could every bit as completely master you and subdue you as any other god could. That's why in the old King James Version, some of you will remember, it says, ye cannot serve God and mammon. That is a proper name. (laughs) Andy Crouch, in his book, The Life That We're Looking For, he says this, he says, for mammon does not want something, uh, excuse me, for mammon does want something very much indeed, because mammon is ultimately not at all just a thing, nor even a system, but a will at work in history. And what it wants above all is to separate power from relationship, abundance from dependence, and being from personhood. You gotta remember what we've said in the past as we talked about it in the sermon series, that sin is not just law-breaking. Sin is this cosmic tyrant, and mammon is a rival god that demands your loyalty. This rival God makes promises of life, but it is a thief, and it takes from you. And first, Peter, Peter says that greed, or more specifically, the love of money, the love of this God, the love for mammon, is indeed the root of all kinds of evils. And when you think about it this way, like a, like a rival God, it's going to help you understand the depth of, of the solution that's offered in the Bible. Christianity is not just, it's not just trying to make you a nice person or give you a light brush up on your morality. It's a lot more challenging, a lot more difficult than that. And this is so, you guys, this is so different than what we expect when we expect to hear when we go to church, right? Most people go to church hoping to get a good moral grounding so that they'll become good human beings. We bring our children to church to, you know, teach them a little bit of moderation with regard to money, right? We, we, we don't want them to be hoarders when they grow up or to be over-the-top spenders like no gold rims on their car. We don't want them to be stuck in lotto lines, you know, wasting away the little bit of money that they have. Uh, we don't want them to get caught up in insider trading scandals. And we think if we just do this right, you know, the church will teach them a little bit of generosity on the way. But then you start paying attention to the particulars of the Bible's teachings, and it's radical. And it says things like, we should be content, perfectly content with just food and clothes. Like, if you had a kid who was content with only food and clothes, wouldn't we be worried about them? Like, wouldn't we be worried about their lack of ambition? I mean, would you really prefer that your children prefer not to be rich? I mean, we would all be very understanding if life circumstances led someone to a very humble life, but would you prefer that your child not want to be rich if they had the choice? Do you want your children to be the kind of people who wind up giving away so much money that they put their retirement savings at risk? The Bible seems to point us to say, use your money in such a way that puts feet 
to your belief that Jesus rose from the dead and that this life is not the only one that there is. And if we are wrong about the resurrection, then the way that we're using our money and the way that we're giving away our money is irresponsible and dumb. But we're not going to hedge our bets because we believe. You know, people come to church hoping that they're, we're going to teach on how to be good and have moderation with the little bit of money that we have and that God will like us better if we're moderate and use our money well. But that just isn't the Christian message about money. It just isn't. Our hearts are in the grip of avarice and we need more than just moderation. God wants our hearts to be set on him in a greedy way and not to be set on money in a greedy way. And there's no middle ground between the two things. Jesus said you can serve God or you can serve mammon, but not both. God or money. And if you're like me, you totally want to choose option C, right? If you... Like, I want to serve God and money, and I'm pretty sure that my life will go better if I do it that way. I have this latent belief that I can't manage my greed, but the Bible disagrees. And so as always, I'm preaching to myself, and you're just listening in again. And as I speak, I want you to interpret me as like this father who's talking to his daughter who's dating this boy who's not worth her, right? A boy who's like beneath her. A boy who belittles her and steals her joy and diminishes her glory. And I'm trying to talk her out of loving him because her love is more like an addiction. I want you to hear, my, hear that in my voice because money is so natural to love, but it's not worth it and it kills and it belittles hope you hear that in my voice as we think about this. So this morning, I'm just going to use the rest of my sermon just to consider two things. What greed does, like what avarice does, and then how we can be healed. So first, what greed does. In our passage, Jesus says right away, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth, right? Right where they can be destroyed and taken, right? But, verse 20, Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. In other words, where they're never at risk. And then verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in this case, we see the external nature of greed. Greed here is like this behavioral pattern of possession, of grasping, of holding on to things, uh, this would be like excessive spending or excessive acquiring. Watches, shoes, stocks, cryptocurrency, whatever the thing is. But it's also excessive saving, right? We might, um, that, what, what, what sometimes we call like hoarding. Uh, hoarding out of fear, hoarding out of uncertainty. Uncertainty of what we feel about the future. Like it's that feeling you got when you heard that, Silicon Valley Bank, or maybe your whole series of banks went on a run and it made you uneasy and uncertain about the future. That feeling, that's what I'm talking about. 
These are external behavioral patterns of possession where we grasp for things and we hold on to them. There's a choice of how you're relating to the stuff in this world, where you, where you lay, lay treasure up, whether in this world or in the one to come, where you lay your treasure up affects, trains, conditions your heart. And your heart follows your treasure. You see. In the following verses, right afterwards, the inverse now is true. There is this internal nature to greed as well. In other words, we can see greed in how we live, but we need to understand that greed lives in us internally. Verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. And then in verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. See, your eye is something that is a part of you. It's not part of the world, it's a part of you. That is, there is something in you that is looking outward, and whatever you lay your eyes on, that becomes this rival God. If your eyes are greedy, that thing you're looking at that's ordinary and innocent becomes this idol, a rival God. Thomas Aquinas describes avarice as this excessive love or this inordinate love. So avarice looks at ordinary things and expects them to have God-like qualities. You look at your bank account. You look at your Amazon shopping cart. You look at your 12-month calendar, your vacation schedule, and you think, that is what makes me happy or what makes me whole or secure. You love these things because you believe this idol will give you all the things that God can't give you or doesn't want to give you. But these words in Matthew 6, Jesus' very words, are, they're trying to wake us up. Right? I'm, I'm looking at my daughter and pleading, please break up with this boy. He's hurting you. It's like the Stockholm Syndrome, right? We keep going back to our abuser, right? We keep putting our love upon our abuser, believing his false promises. Yeah, yeah, I'll be better next time. Come back, I'll be better next time. And you do, and he keeps hurting you. How great is the darkness Rebecca DeYoung, she says, greed wears many faces, an overflowing shopping cart or a single cherished purchase, stock portfolio that is aggressive or one that is conservative, a wallet full of credit cards or a safety deposit box with a few carefully guarded treasures, a garage full of expensive cars or a closet full of great deals. In all of its varied expressions of gain and grasping, however, greed is perverted love. So the exterior and the interior are always intimately connected because we're both physical and spiritual beings. And so our daily choices are habituated deep into our souls. 
And this habituation creates vice, and then it feels inescapable, right? Repeated bodily actions, whether consuming or sacrificing, wears grooves into our hearts until they are legitimately what we perceive to be our basic longings. Greed is a spiritual attachment to a physical thing. We love things in this world more than they deserve. They move up in this hierarchy, right? It's a disordered love. We love our stuff more than we love God. We love our stuff more than we love people. It's on the wrong place in the hierarchy, you see. Now, when I say that love is a, a disordered, uh, lo- when I say that greed is a disordered love, I mean, it doesn't sound great, but it doesn't sound urgent either. So let me be explicit with what avarice does. Because greed is so baked into our souls, so habituated into our being, our imagination and feelings towards God lose their loving passion. The Lord becomes very easy to ignore and in fact, desirable to ignore. Why? Because deep down, we think that money will give us what God is unwilling to give. And in a very real way, we believe that money is a better, at least a more predictable God. Now, no one says that out loud, but that is the premise that's baked into our hearts. And what's worse, we think if I have enough money, If I have just enough, I won't actually have to depend on God's unpredictable will. I mean, I'm very glad that he's there. I hope that he likes me, but I am going to cover my bases. I'm going to cover the life contingencies myself and make sure that in reality, I don't need God because mammon is just fine. (laughs) That's why particularly rich people I'm talking about us in the room, have a hard time with the Christian faith because we have other options, other options than Jesus when there are desperate times. We have money, a rival God, and it makes it impossible to have a passionate life with the Lord. And so life with this rival God at first makes it seem like Jesus was wrong. It seems to us that you can indeed serve both mammon and God. But listen closely, you guys. This is spiritual ruin and destruction. The Apostle Paul is going to say in 1 Timothy 6, he says, it is through this craving, and when you hear that word craving, think habituated love for money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. With time, greed does not feel like greed. Do you know what it feels like? It feels like unbelief. It will feel like a struggle to believe or have any assurance that God will provide for you. And so as you move on, Habituated towards mammon, the passion fades away, and the rival god of mammon takes his place. How great 
is the darkness. Avarice is truly a deadly sin. So let me pivot at this point. So, so far, I tried to explain what greed does. Let me move to my second and final point. How can we be healed? How can we be healed? If this particular sin is like cancer in the soul, it would be really helpful if we could locate it, right? Like a doctor who knows precisely where the cancer is can more skillfully remove it, right? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us three questions to ask ourselves to kind of zero in on this cancer. Here's the first one. Where do you linger? Where do you linger? That's a really weird question. Most of you are thinking cranberries right now, I know. What do I mean? Uh, You'll be familiar with the Old Testament story of Sodom and Gomorrah. That story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not really primarily about weird sexual exploits. It's a story about greed. In Genesis 19, Lot and his wife were visited by angels and they were told to flee this disastrous, ruinous city. The city had been so overtaken by rival gods that God was going to execute his punishment on it. And Lot was warned, like, get out of Dodge immediately. And there's this one sentence that completely interprets the heart of Lot. Genesis 19, 16 says, and he lingered. Listen, Lot is not just a good guy in a bad place who accidentally wandered into a bad situation. There is something much deeper and habituated going on in him. Why did Lot linger? Well, why do we linger over anything? We linger over what we love. Right? Because what we're supposed to be are these pilgrims traveling through this world to a better country, to the celestial city, right? To a better life with God forever. Like, like the imagery shows us in the book of Hebrews. We're supposed to be citizens of the kingdom of God, not citizens of this world. But greed makes you stop and linger. Lot is not passing through. He's putting roots down into the system of the world. Lot is not leaving Sodom. Lot is leading in Sodom. And so he lingers. Where in this world, in this life, do you linger? Over what do you linger? What are you not even willing to pray about giving up? Like if someone need, said you need to part with this thing or that thing, where would you hesitate and linger? What physical thing do you have the spiritual or emotional attachment to? So first question was, over what do you linger? Here's a second question. What do you lie about? What do you lie about? In the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there's this wild story about this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. 
It takes place not long after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Um, this, there's this young house church freely sharing everything with one another. It's this powerful see, um, scene of the Holy Spirit working among all of these new converts. But this one couple sold a, a piece of property and they kept some of the proceeds for themselves. Now listen to me. Now this couple was not obligated to sell the property and they were certainly within their rights to keep some of the proceeds for themselves. All the options were on the table for Ananias and Sapphira. But what they did was, as they sold all the property, kept some of the proceeds, and posed as if they were giving all of it to the church. You see, Mammon had so gripped their heart that they felt compelled to lie. The apostle Peter then looks at him and asks this sober question, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? See, Ananias and Sapphira literally see how deadly avarice is and they die. Is there anything that you are lying about right now? Or maybe you're just conveniently leaving things untold or unconfessed. Really consider this question carefully because this might be a place of greed. Why is talking about money so uncomfortable to us? Why do we prefer to leave out all the details when we're talking about money? Isn't it because being transparent makes us feel too exposed? Greed strengthens our lies, but naming and confessing breaks its grip. So first we asked, where do you linger? The second question is, what do you lie about? Here's the last one. Over what things do you say mine? Over what things do you say mine? See, verse after verse, the Bible attests to one central idea that to God belongs all things. You can go verse after verse after verse. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. This is how come, right? You'll hear, when, when we're talking about giving, you'll, you'll hear Connie say, hey, we're just giving back to God what is rightfully his, what is already his. And yet, even though we say that, we believe the lie that some of the things that we have actually do belong to us. C.S. Lewis beautifully addresses this in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, I've cited this this particular letter before, uh, you've heard me say it before, but man, every time I read it, there's like this new angle that kind of comes alive. If you're unfamiliar with the screw tape letters, it's this imaginary correspondence between two devils, right? One is like a high-ranking devil um, whose name is Screwtape. He, he's, he oversees like a whole legion, a whole unit of devils. And he's writing, letter, he's writing a letter to one of his lower-ranking devils, just happens to be his nephew, whose name is Wormwood. So Wormwood is responsible for just one soul, for gaining it and keeping it. 
and just keeping that soul away from God so that they may feed upon it forever eternally. So Screwtape gives Wormwood advice on how to successfully fulfill this project. He says, The sense of ownership is in general, in general, is always to be encouraged. Humans are always putting up claims to ownership that sound equally funny in heaven and in hell, and we must keep them doing so. We produce the sense of ownership not only by pride, but also confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run between my boots, through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, and my country, all the way to my God. They can be taught to reduce all these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense, not really very different from my boots. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father, which is Satan, or the enemy, God, will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, and certainly not to them, whatever happens." About what do you say mine? The word mine, in its fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by us about anything, money and possessions included. Avarice makes us believe that we are our own, that this part of me or my stuff is mine. No, no, it's not. It just isn't. And the more that you believe it, the more that avarice takes over you and you become this black hole. Greed is an emotional, physical black hole sucking in everything and everything else. Always taking, always consuming, always demanding, never sacrificing, never loving. Like, look around your house. Look around your accounts and portfolios. Look around your heart and ask this question about what do you say is mine? Asking these three questions will help you locate the avarice in your heart so that you can deal with it. So let me finish by answering this question now. How is the vice of greed undone? Like once we've identified it with those questions, how's it undone? You know the answer to this, right? You know the answer to this. What is it? It's generosity. It's generosity. Generosity unravels greed, but not first and foremost your generosity. God does not want your money. Look at me. God does not want your money. Why? Because he has it already. It's, it's already his. 
You don't believe me? Listen, there's no tithing in death. At death, everything is given back 100%. Everything goes back to God. I don't care if you have a billion dollars sitting in your bank account. You don't get it. God is not after your stuff because he has it already. He is after your soul. Do y'all remember that movie, Ocean's Eleven? It's not primarily a heist movie, everyone. It is a love story. It is. Do y'all remember what makes Tess, played by the lovely Julia Roberts, fall in love with Danny Ocean, played by the very average George Clooney? Do you remember what makes Tess leave her rich and powerful boyfriend, Tony Benedict, which is played by Andy Garcia, strong last name? (laughs) But do you remember what makes Tess fall in love with Danny Ocean once again? It's this encounter that Danny Ocean has with Tony Benedict. Because Danny Ocean, the whole movie is about him stealing all of his wealth, the big heist all of his Vegas casinos, this inordinate amount of wealth. He does it, and he sets up this meeting with Tony Benedict, and he live streams it so that while he's having this conversation, Tess can watch it in real time. And Danny Ocean gives Tony Benedict a choice. He gives him an option. Ocean says, I will give you all of your wealth back. I'll give it all back to you if you do just one thing. And what's that one thing? If you break it off with Tess. And Tony Benedict does it immediately, instantly. Immediately, he takes that option, takes all of his wealth back, and he gives up Tess. And in that moment, Tess realizes that Benedict never really loved her. He never loved her anywhere close to how much he loved all of his stuff. But she also realizes that Danny Ocean always loved her more than he loved anything else. That he loved her more than all the wealth he had ever accumulated. And in fact, the entire elaborate scheme, the whole heist to steal all of that wealth was for that very moment to set up that very deal, that very video feed, so that she could see the choice that was being offered and being made. And immediately, Tess loves Danny Ocean back. And she drops Tony Benedict and goes back to Danny Ocean. It's a love story. Hear me, all of history hinges on this one moment where Jesus gives up everything. He rejects the deal with Satan, takes the deal of God, right? All of history hinges on this moment, and we, we like we rehearse it every single week so that you can see just how much God loves you, like a live feed so you can see it and believe it. And I wonder if, 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 if it still melts your heart. I wonder if it still moves you 
does it make you love him back at all? Because it can, if you'll let it. And so we get to live into that love. We get to live into that faith this very moment. On Sundays, we come together for worship to desecrate the idol of mammon by giving our money away. Our consistent and sacrificial generosity is about habituating God's story and God's love into our soul and leaving our old slave master. Like if you've been anxious about bills close, a bank's closing or bills or debts, you get to come to church and rest. Here, here you look at mammon and say, you're not the boss of me. Like, you're not my master, because I am free in Christ. And by being generous, you are mocking the false idols of mammon. See, the love of money degrades you, but Jesus ennobles you and humanizes you. And it helps you to be cancer-free. And if you've ever suffered with cancer, you know how precious those words are. Just like screw tape, God our Father is after your soul too, but not to feed upon it, but to bless it. Perhaps we could say that God is greedy for your soul and he will do everything necessary to have you. And in fact, he already has. God the Father has sent God the Son to earth to pay for our sins. He gave an eternally expensive ransom to have us. God is the only one who properly uses the word mine. He looks at you and says, mine. And God the Son, Jesus, our Savior, he lives this perfectly generous life. Everything he had, he shared freely and generously. And the only thing upon which Jesus says mine, is your sin. He looks at your sin. He says, mine, give it to me. And he took it upon himself on a cross so that you would have all things, so that you would inherit even the earth, so that the black hole is reversed, and so that you would live a full life of generosity just as God is generous For you were made in his image to be like him. And so, church, we have to choose between God and a rival God. That rival God, Mammon, can subdue you. So what will you habituate into your heart? God's love or stuff? Amen.